This is Just the Right Book, and I'm Roxanne Cody of R.J. Julia Booksellers. Each week, I hope to bring to you the stories behind the books, talking with some of the very best contemporary nonfiction authors, books that are timeless and charming, provocative and of the moment. The conversations you want to hear about the books you need to read. Today's podcast is a recording of a conversation with Danny Shapiro, the author of the new book, Signal Fires. It was a live event held at R.J. Julia Booksellers in Madison, Connecticut, and I hope you enjoy the conversation. Many of you know Danny, but just for the record, she is a best-selling author of memoirs and novels, a screenwriter, a magazine writer, a teacher, a podcast host of The Fascinating Family Secrets, Oh, and she's a mom and a wife, but most importantly, she's a friend of R.J. Julia's and mine. She joins us tonight for her new novel, her first in 15 years, which has everything most of us want in fiction, indelible characters, can't put downness, and the ability to provoke how we think about our lives by understanding other lives. We have Tons to talk about, but first, please join me in welcoming Danny Shapiro. Danny, let's start with this question because it seems a little oxymoronic. And that is that you've said that this book is your most personal book, which might make sense if you weren't someone. You've written five memoirs? Five memoirs. So why do you think of this book as your most personal? Such a great question. I mean, I I started out as a novelist, made this like detour into memoir, detour that turned into a life in memoir <laughs> for reasons that were, I, I really didn't understand why. And I assumed I would return to fiction at some point, but when when I did with this book, I think in writing fiction, there is the real possibility of it being such a powerful, almost, you know, the, the subconscious of the writer, the obsessions of the writer, the themes of the writer are all sort of on display in a, in a, in a, in a different way. I think if you read the body of work of a memoirist, you get to know her in a certain way. But if you mm. read the body of work of a fiction writer, I actually think it goes deeper in a way, in not not as a form, but deeper into the psyche where we, we start to see, you know, sort of what makes somebody tick. Do you think that's about, I, I hadn't thought about this before, but do you think that's about when you're writing a memoir, you are deliberately knowing what you're exposing and not exposing. Exactly. And that when you're writing fiction, you're actually less guarded. Completely. Um, you know, when people say to me after my years of public contemplation about things, you know, oh, you must feel like I know you. I, I For years, I, I always thought, well, I don't feel that way. Is there something wrong with me? I, mm. I don't feel exposed. And I think it's because writing memoir is a consummate act of controlling the narrative. Yeah. Um, you're controlling the story. You're, 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 choosing exactly what belongs, what to leave in, what to leave out. And in good memoir, the writer's not doing that in a self-protective way. It's more like fashioning a persona that's going to 
allow the story to be told and mm. and received by the reader in the best possible way. Whereas in writing in writing fiction and writing a novel, the writer is often the last to know. You know, themes of mine or obsessions of mine get pointed out to me after the fact. And I'll think like, wow, I hadn't even I hadn't even thought of that. Or or I'll be writing a sentence or a scene and I won't know what the end of it is going to be until I get there. So there's much more of, I mean, the discovery in, in memoir is the why, you know, you know what yeah. happened, but why or how, or what belongs to what. And in fiction, it's, you know, the whole world is up for grabs. And so there's, you know, the, the choosing of what, you know, of what ends up between the pages of, of a book and a novel is just so completely different. It seems to me that every week there's another gift I need to send for a wedding, a new home, a bridal shower, or just like to be nice. And the place I go to is Uncommon Goods. If you want to avoid boring, basic, and bland gifts this year, this is super. One of my favorite things is a tray where you could put the address and they show you like a little longitude, latitude map for it. And when you shop at Uncommon Goods, you're supporting artists and small independent businesses. And, you know, I think that's what we all need to be doing. So shop now before they sell out this holiday season. Uncommon Goods has high quality, unique, and often handmade in the U.S. products. They're just out of the ordinary and you feel like you're really picking out a great gift. So from art to jewelry to kitchen to home and bar, Uncommon Goods has something for everyone. And with every purchase you make at Uncommon Goods, they give back $1 to a nonprofit partner of your choice. They've donated more than $2.5 million to date. So here's what you can do. To get 15% off your next gift, go to uncommongoods.com slash write book. That's uncommongoods.com slash write book, and you'll get 15% off plus a great gift to send. Don't miss out on this limited time offer. Uncommon Goods, we're all out of the ordinary. To me, there's nothing more fun than learning. And with Masterclass, you can learn from the world's best mind anytime, anywhere, and at your own pace. You can learn how to cook the perfect egg from Gordon Ramsay, improve your writing skills from Amy Tan and Billy Collins, or learn tactical empathy from former FBI lead hostage negotiator Chris Voss. With over 150 classes from a range of world-class instructors, that thing you always wanted to do is closer than you think. I highly recommend you check out Masterclass. Get unlimited access to every class. And as a Just the Right Book listener, you get 15% off your annual membership. Go to masterclass.com slash write book now. That's masterclass.com slash write book. Happy learning. We had an event here quite a long time ago, and Donald Hall, the poet who was from New Hampshire, was reading from his book, and Jane Kenyon had just died. So we had 
I'm trying to remember, we had a writer who read Jane Kenyon's book, but a man raised his hand and referred to a poem that was about a tree or leaves. I don't even remember what the poem was about. And he said to Donald Hall, I don't know why, but that poem made me think of my dad dying. And Donald Hall got all red in the face and had tears in his eyes and had not realized till this man asked the question that he had written that poem proximate with his father's death. Mm-hmm. Talk about yes. unconscious. Yeah, exactly. And, 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 and being the last to know, having it be pointed out, which I think yeah. happens so often, so often with fiction and often way after the fact. And one of the things I've realized in the last few years, you know, it comes to metaphor when you're writing memoir, part of the art of memoir is recognizing the metaphor in your own life. Like, mm. so for example, my memoir, Hourglass, which is about my marriage and time and memory, it opens- uh, A great book to read. Thank you. I, I, I love that book. Um, so does it's one of my fa- It's one of my favorite children. <laughs> um, but it opens with my looking out the window at my husband. He's in a bathrobe. He's, you know, outside walking the dog in the snow. It's winter. We live in the country. And he's holding what appears to be a gun, and he's aiming it at a woodpecker who has been nonstop pecking away at the siding of our house. Now, that moment I recognized, I knew the woodpecker was a woodpecker, in fact, you know, real live woodpecker, still alive, I assume assume Michael's aim wasn't good. But it was also a metaphor. The woodpecker was a metaphor. And I recognized that, and you can do that in memoir because if you're somewhat dispassionately and clearly looking at your own life and your own material, then these things start to kind of reveal Mm -hmm. themselves and become clear. If you're writing fiction and you're sitting there thinking, I love this metaphor as you're writing it, you are almost inevitably writing a really bad Bad metaphor. Yeah, bad book. If you're thinking, like, this is a really awesome metaphor here. It's it's like (laughs) metaphors are kind of none of your business when you are crafting the book, it's, it's, it's for other people to say, in a way, what that gentleman said to Don Hall. When I read a book that has five metaphors on the first page or two, I don't even give it my 25-page commitment. Yeah. It's over. Yeah. No. All right. But let's get to your book, because uh, we've been talking a little bit in general. And you open your book with these lines. These are your lines. A tremor here sets off an earthquake there, a fault line deepens, a wire gets tripped. The family that is the, I want to say beneficiary, but the object of this earthquake are the people that we get to meet over the book. But I'd like you to share with us the earthquake. So this is the very opening of the book. The chapters are all titled with the names of characters, and it moves around through different characters' points of view through time. Sarah and Theo. And it's nothing, really, or might be nothing, or ought to be nothing, as he leans his head forward to press the tip of his cigarette to the car's lighter. It sizzles on contact, a sound particular to its brief moment in history in which cars have lighters and otherwise sensible 15-year-olds choke down Marlboro Reds and drive their mother's Buicks without so much as a learner's permit. There's a girl he wants to impress. Her name is Misty Zimmerman, 
And if she lives through this night, she will grow up to be a magazine editor or a high school teacher or a defense lawyer. She will be a mother of three or remain childless. She will die young of ovarian cancer or live to know her great-grandchildren. But these are only a few possible arcs to a life, a handful of shooting stars in the night sky. Change one thing and everything changes. A tremor here sets off an earthquake there. A fault line deepens. A wire gets tripped. His foot on the gas. He doesn't really know what he's doing, but that won't stop him. He's all jacked up just like a 15-year-old boy. He has something to prove. To himself, to Misty, to his sister. It's as if he's following a script written in Braille, his fingers running across code he doesn't understand. Should I stop there? I mean, it's going to end badly. Yeah. <laughs> Go with that. And it does end badly. And the Wilf family, Sarah and Theo, who you mentioned, are the children of the Wilfs. And you go on to do something that I thought worked brilliantly. And that is, it's not linear. It starts in 1985 when the accident happens, and then it goes to- 2010. 2010 to 1999 to 2020 to 2014, and ultimately to 1970. What about that made this work? And how did you even, why did you do it that way? It happened over the course of 15 years. When I started this book, I started it 15 years ago. I had these characters. They were fully realized for me. I knew them. I loved them. I wrote about 100 pages, the section that takes place in 2010 and the section that takes place on New Year's Eve of 1999, so essentially the year 2000, Y2K, New Year's Eve. And But I was committed to telling the story backward in time. That's what I wanted to do, mm -hmm. and I was married to that idea, and I couldn't see any other way to tell the story, but the story could not actually be told that way because if you keep on moving backward in time, you run out of runway, and then, you know, if characters hasn't been born yet, what do you do with that <laughs> character? Then that character, you know, is, 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 is danced off stage, and then, you know, that that's the end of that. There's a reason why novels, with very few exceptions, are not written backward in time. And I was devastated to put it in a drawer, but I really couldn't figure it out. I, I didn't know how to tell the story because it had begun for me with this idea of time marching backward. And it stayed in a drawer for a long time, and I thought it would always stay in a drawer. I really thought it was the one that got away, and I wasn't going to be able to figure it out. And then a lot of life happened. A lot of, you know, the, the Wilfs were in the drawer, along with the Shankmans, and a lot happened in my life in that, I would say, in the, in the, in, in the intervening 10 years. I mean, thunderclaps of things, like for those of you who've read Inheritance, discovering that my dad hadn't been my biological father, that a secret had been kept for me all my life um, that was formative in terms of identity. On the heels of that, uh, my husband got sick and was 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 very ill for you know a period of time and, and has has since recovered but had very serious cancer and then um the pandemic struck and it was really like you know it was a very like deeply sort of altering time and so then here i am and it's 
you know, we're in COVID. Most writers, I felt like, I felt like most writers and artists did, which is, what's the point? You know, what, what can you possibly write about when there's this much tragedy and hardship going on in the world? And so I had a fallow period of time. I wrote, I, I wrote a screenplay, so it wasn't completely fallow. Yeah, I wrote but, a screenplay. Now, <laughs> that ended up being magical. The rest I'll tell you of about us it. were making bad yeah. banana bread yeah, was, at best. <laughs> You're writing hey, a I screenplay. Got the, I, got, I got some skills. I, got, I became a much better cook, and I, I learned how to make a cocktail, too. But um, I one day I was cleaning out my office closet, like Marie Kondoing my office closet. So everything that didn't spark joy was, like, all over my office floor. And on a shelf sitting there in a neat pile of pages was this manuscript, were those 110, 120 pages. And something just told me, sit down and reread this. I don't, I'm not in the habit of doing that, but I did. I sat down in the mess and I reread these pages and a couple things happened. One was, especially work of mine that's years old, I usually don't admire it. I feel like I've grown as a writer and I'll see that. And, and instead I thought, this is really good. And then the next thought that I had was, and now it's 2020. I've written these two chunks of this story, one that takes place on one night in 2010, the other that takes place on one night in 1999, and now it's 2020. Who, what would have happened to these people? You know, the 11-year-old boy who is, his name is Waldo, who is the beating- We love. We love, we love Waldo. Him. He's the beating heart of the book, and which is why, you know, we couldn't go, we couldn't keep moving backward in time because there would be no Waldo. <laughs> Um, Would you then say, where's, where's Waldo? Waldo? <laughs> yeah. Um, and he, I thought, who would he be? Oh, he'd be 21. He'd be a college student. Mm. Where would he be in college? Would he have come home? What would home like be now? Where would his parents be? And there's another character named Theo who, well, you just heard a little bit about Theo when he was a 15-year-old driving that car. But Theo becomes a chef and he has a restaurant in Brooklyn that's sort of really taken off and is is um, like the center of his life. And what would Theo be doing? What would be like? What would he be like? And what would he be, you know, who would he be in 2020? So it, suddenly it opened up to me and I thought, this can, this can move around in time in potentially a really satisfying way where we get glimpses and windows into these characters' lives at really pivotal moments and also into the intersection of these characters' lives during moments in which they impact each other. Well, what I I loved the I loved the structure of it, but I also loved the way it gave you an opportunity to like, you know, sometimes when you're reading a book and you want to be satisfied, like what is going to happen? And then you fast forward or speculate. As you were saying that, Danny, one of the things I thought about, so 15 years ago, you were in your 40s. And might it be that a difference between you then and now is you, like many of us in our 40s or 30s, have this sort of fantastical notion that we control what happens in our lives. And I think as we get to be, you're, are you, you're, you're born in 62, so you just turned 60, or at 73, I think... Mm, you sure learn 
that you don't control everything. Do you think that was part of it, that that all of a sudden, when you had it then, you couldn't have imagined that it would be an unraveling of lives, and now you can? Actually, I think that, though I think what you're saying is true for a lot of people in their 30s and 40s, I always held that. <laughs> you, that option. I, I always you had. Knew. I did. I always had the sense that the awareness of of the fragility of mm. life, and I, I didn't make assumptions that it would always be. Yeah. You so know, that was not a change so with age. That wasn't a change. I think the change with age, and and it goes back to really my discovery about my dad, my husband's illness, and the pandemic was this sense of interconnectedness and interdependence that we all experienced during the pandemic of like, wow, we really need each other. And also that feeling of, you know, we don't know who's passing us on the street. We make assumptions about people. We don't know who's going to walk into our lives and impact our lives. We don't know sometimes when we meet someone and there's just such a sense of, I know you, you know, what that is. And and so, for example, when I found out that my dad hadn't been my biological dad and before I knew who, who was, I remember thinking I could have been walking around the world and the man who is my biological father could be walking right by me or a sibling could be walking right by me mm. and I would not have known. The invisible threads that connect us are just that, they're invisible. And so I think I really can't. And then, and then of course... You know, and the the pandemic really brought that home for 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 so many of us. So I think it was that it was that feeling of, and there's something beautiful in those invisible threads. There's something beautiful in that interconnectedness and interdependence. The book, to me, had a metaphysical quality to it, and some of it is Waldo, the character we love, is like a precocious when we meet him is precocious nine or 10 year old and has an iPad and has an app that shows you all the constellations. And there was a line that when you talk about the interconnectedness, I just thought this was the most beautiful language. Well, I'll let you read that paragraph. Oh, sure. Because it's, it's such a beautiful paragraph. And then I'll ask the question. When some stars die, their material goes back into the universe, Waldo said in the special voice he reserved for encyclopedic knowledge. It takes millions of years for a star to die, millions. It collapses to form a very dense white dwarf. It's super heavy. Even just a teaspoon of material from a white dwarf would weigh hundreds of tons. Then it takes billions of years for a white dwarf to cool off and become invisible. All the while he spoke, Waldo tossed his mother's ashes into the river. But the other stars, really huge stars, end their lives suddenly. When they run out of fuel, they swell and become red supergiants. Then they blow themselves up into a supernova explosion so huge that it outshines all the other stars in the galaxy. Eventually, all that's left is stardust. Waldo paused, then looked into his cupped hands. I'm oversimplifying, he said, but you get it. The stardust eventually makes other stars and planets. One of the themes that I kept thinking about when I was reading the book, as you were saying about the interconnectedness, was this notion 
that we have electromagnetic fields, that we become connected even to strangers. Do you, do you, is that a concept that resonates with you that there are, even at when someone passes? It does. I mean, I think Waldo sort of ends up embodying some of what I might call a philosophy um, mm-hmm. or, or just a way of being. <clears throat> My father died when I was 23 in a car accident and I was very close to him. And throughout my life, I have at various times felt him with me. And I feel it as a, a chill. You know, whenever I talk about it, I get, I, get, I get the chill. Do I think that there's somebody up in the sky pulling levers to make that happen? I don't really. But I do, I do know that, and, and Waldo's view of this is actually really, you know, scientific and it comes from quantum physics, you know, that, that energy once created cannot be destroyed. So where does it go? Where does it go? Yeah. It's here. Yeah. So that for me and Waldo goes through things, he sees things because he's very, he's brilliant and special and a little, I think of him as a little bit on the spectrum. Mm -hmm. He's, he's probably got Asperger's and his parents don't really understand him. And his father really just wants him to be normal and just he's his father's like in a rage toward him all the time because he he really out of love he wants he he feels so protective of him because it's easier to go through life when you're normal than when you're special yeah um and those are some great scenes mm, between Waldo, Waldo and, his dad. and his dad when he's trying to control himself and when he can't, he can't in he, both he, cases. Yeah, he can't. I mean, people find that Waldo's dad's name is Shankman. No, no first name, just Shankman. His wife calls him Shankman. And Shankman, um, you know, some people find Shankman to be the most unlikable character in the book. I, I had a lot of compassion for I him. I did too. He's just... I was sad for him, though. Yeah. I was sad. Well, like the deck is stacked against him. Like he's just, yeah. he sees the world in a certain way which is that everybody's out to get him and, you know, and, and it's dog eat dog out there. And, you know, he's very aspirational. He and his, his wife, Alice bought a house that was kind of a little bit above their, their heads and he's kind of struggling to make things work. And then they have this enormously special child who has a very precipitous birth and Shankman just wants to all he really wants to do is connect with Waldo, but he doesn't know how. And he ultimately comes to the realization that he doesn't deserve him. You know, that he's, he, that it wasn't the right parent-child match. And, and so there's this very sort of, you know, heart-wrenching feeling that he has at the end. He, he says late in the book, he's fucked up the one thing that you're not, that, that you can't fix and you can't, you know, you can't change, which is that you know, he's, he, he, he's fucked up being a father to this boy. That raises this question. In one part of the book, you raise the question that a lot of us think about a lot. What if this? What if that? Like if any of us have ever been in an accident or something terrible and sudden, you go, well, what if I had turned left? What if I had turned right? What if I had waited five minutes? What if I had done that? like picking at a scab. You do it over and over and over and over again. So on your podcast and with your own observational skills, what do you find 
are the circumstances that allows someone to move past those what ifs, or like we were talking about Shankman, allows them to move past a regret, not with disavowing the regret or the action, but able to go on and live fully. Like not perseverating, reaching like break breaking the 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 cycle of per- perseveration. Exactly, but I wouldn't have thought to use that nice word. <laughs> that was a very good word. I like that word. <laughs> That's a good word. Maybe I'll make it my word of the day tomorrow. I, I would right. perseverate. Um, what comes to mind is something that Bessel van der Kolk said to me when he and I were in conversation for my podcast. And you all probably know he wrote this book called The Body Keeps the Score that's about trauma. Like, let's just talk about like little little T trauma. When people feel that they can actually make meaning out of the thing that's happened, that's when they start to heal. Mm-hmm. And that's when, I mean, it was, it was shocking, hugely um, a, like a shock of recognition for me when Bessel said that because I realized like, why was I you know, within a couple of years after my discovery about my father, which really was earth-shaking for me, you know, why was I as okay as I was? I mean, I was encountering a lot of people who were not as okay with similar discoveries. And I thought, I made meaning. I wrote a book. Mm -hmm. The book came out in the world and it helped a lot of people. So it made me feel like I had actually, I I am a meaning maker. It's what I do in my life. It's kind of my, my, just, just how I, walk through the world. And so I think, you know, in, in signal fires, the characters who are able to find a way to make meaning out of their circumstances in some ways, big, in some ways, you know, small, they are the ones who ultimately give it, giving it voice, giving it voice. I mean, that, that to me is, is, you know, this family, I mean, the, the novel opens with a bang, but the entire rest of the book is about the aftermath. It's about the cost of silence and shame and, you know, the corrosive power of a kind of shared secret in a family. And, you know, and all the characters, all of them, the Shankmans and the Wilfs in one way or another, don't necessarily completely let themselves be known. We get to know them better than they know each other. And that comes at such a price. And then when that's lifted, there's a lot of joy there and a lot of connection and a lot of possibility. You had a sentence when I was going to ask you about the corrosive element of secrets, which is certainly an element in the book. It's an element in the podcast. And those of you who haven't listened to Family Secrets, I think it's in its seventh season. It's really great listening. I listened to the one where you interviewed Katie Couric today. And I I thought that gave you a whole different dimension about Katie Kirk. It was a a great interview. The the line that you have in here that I think comes after Ben, who's the father of these kids, as you say, it becomes the deepest kind of family secret, one that's so dangerous it will never be spoken. And what you're saying is, it's not only speaking it that changes its power, but it's the ability to make use of it, sense of it, purpose up from it. Purpose, I would say. Yeah, yeah, exactly. 
Just like the best books, the best TV has great writing, great characters, and great stories. And some of the best stories of all time have come from the pens and typewriters of Britain's female mystery writers. That's what's fun about BritBox, the streaming service created by BBC and ITV. With BritBox, Britain's queens of crime are streaming all in one place, whether it's Agatha Christie, Anne Cleves, or the Vera series that lots of people are loving. So I have a special limited time offer for our listeners, 50% off your first month when you sign up for a monthly plan, but only if you go to BritBox.com and use the promo code BOOK at checkout. Don't wait. Get 50% off your first month. Use promo code BOOK at BritBritBox.com. BritBox.com. The, the other thing I want to bring up on the book before I have I have all these other questions that I don't think we'll get to, but there's a Rose Ellen Brown quote in her book titled Before and After, which is one of my top books. And I thought about it a lot when I was reading this. But she had a line in her book that was, a family is an eight-legged creature. Mm-hmm. That no matter whether you like each other or not, or hold hostility or love, you operate as a single creature. Mm. Do you do you agree with that statement? I think I do. I mean, it's 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 beautiful, and it's also terrifying, right? Because what happens? I'm one of six, right? <laughs> That's really terrifying, right? Well, I'm I'm an only child, I so know. like six-legged creature, <laughs> or maybe it's more even more complicated than that. I think that I was very interested in the powerful, powerful desire on the part of the Wilf parents to protect their children at all costs. And that just strikes me as profoundly human, that when when we have children... Even against their own wiring. Against their own wiring, against uh, their sense of, you know, what is right, you know, what is what is ethical, you know, or certainly, you know, what is legal... And you have these these two parents who just want to, they want to bury it. And the thing about secrets is, you know, I, I read recently someone someone wrote, if you bury a secret, you bury it alive. Mm. Um, and, That's a great image. Yeah. And so it, it, right. it, it's always, it's, <laughs> yeah. That's it's, a little scary. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's pr- pretty vivid. It is pretty yeah. vivid. Danny, one of the, uh, I'll come back to the book in a few minutes, but one of the things I was wondering about is you've written nonfiction and fiction. How has writing nonfiction informed the way you write fiction or vice versa? Do you think they impact how you write? I, I think I, I work I work a little bit differently in in each form, but I, you know, when I teach, I love to teach mixed genre workshops where it's fiction and nonfiction mm-hmm. writers together because it's all storytelling. And I think memoirists lose sight of the fact that what they're telling is a story. 
you know, it's, it's the, you know, the, but it happened defense, you know, is like, it doesn't all belong. So I really, over the course of my writing life was very focused on storytelling and writing memoir. And, and obviously with fiction, you, you, you're, you're entering it knowing that you're telling a story, but the, the, the feeling is different. It's you're creating a world as opposed to excavating a world and in creating the world, the world in certain ways becomes more real than your own. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, I didn't base Avalon, New York on a particular town, but I know it when I see it. I've, I mean, I've been, you know, half a dozen times I've, you know, stopped and taken my, my, my British publisher had a book jacket that showed like a house and some, you know, in a neighborhood. And I was like, that's not it at all. That's not Avalon. That is not that they do not live there. And you know, just this, like this sense of, you know, Division Street and the topography of that place. It's like I inhabit it. Um, I take a sidestep into it and sort of live steeped in that world with those characters. I, I had an image in my head also, I mean, partially informed by your creating it. But it did make me think that all neighborhoods are alike in a way of people knowing each other, not knowing each other, of seeing people play in the street or not play in the street, uh, you know, that you barely meet somebody when they go out to get the mail, that you have an elderly person next door to you that you don't even know. And then you've got neighborhoods that are familial, you know, they're a village and everybody knows everybody. So it was, I loved the way you describe that. And it put me on, but you know, 207th Street in Washington Heights, which obviously is tall building. Well, not that tall. They were five stories, but that was a neighborhood. Yeah. Yeah. No, I was very interested in what it is to move to a neighborhood and sort of cast your lot in with the other families in that neighborhood. And there's this whole, you know, this, this idea that I think so many of us have, and I had it too, that the child-rearing years are essentially the center of a life. You know, everything that happened before mm -hmm. is just before. It's like prelude to that. And then, you know, your, your, your kid goes to college and, you know, raise your hands if, if this has happened to you. Somebody says, how's the empty nest going? <laughs> yeah, a lot of hands. And I was like, it's not empty. We're still in it. You know, yeah. and and the chapters around the childbearing and child rearing years are actually longer, you know, hopefully, than the 18 or 20 years of like active, full-on parenting. And I was thinking about the way neighborhoods change over time. I think one of the things that gives, you know, depth to signal fires is that you're right, when I started it, I was like, a, a, you know, a mother of a young child, you know, in my 40s, in it with all the Montessori moms, you know, like, yeah. in, like in the whole kind of in that whole world, you know, and I loved some of it and I couldn't stand some of it, but it was my, it was my life. And then watching over the course of 20 years where people move, people get divorced, 
you know, tragedies happen. Your relationship um, is opportunistic, not in a bad way, but you're, 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 you're doing you, the you same thing. You, you don't have to be friends anymore because your kids are now making right. their own social life. And you're like, I never liked those people anyway. <laughs> all, the, all of it. Like those you moms know. who were annoyed I didn't carry a diaper bag, just a plastic bag with mm. Cheerios and another one with a wipey and a diaper. And that, and that was annoying? That was annoying because yeah. they were offended. I didn't have a big diaper right, bag. Right, right, right. So that the, 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 <laughs> the politics of that kind of, I mean, like during during some of those years, my husband who's here, he would tell you this, like I, I, I he started doing drop-off because I would do drop-off in the morning, but I needed to get to work. I was going to yeah. go, I was going to go work. And there was no time. And I couldn't go on a hike with the other moms and I couldn't do yoga with the other moms. And I started feeling like, uh, you know, really like they were not happy with me. Whereas my husband could walk in and drop him off and nobody would ask him for anything and that he didn't need yeah. to remember anybody's names. It was all fine. So so speaking of Michael, now you've been a screenwriter and I didn't get to ask how that's different from fiction or nonfiction, but I want to, I want to fast forward. Michael, your husband is writing the screenplay, as I understand it, for Inheritance. So does that make you feel safe or scared? Safe. Okay. Um, Inheritance is a super complicated book to adapt. And another screenwriter was initially hired and wrote a draft that just totally didn't get it. You know, I read, I read yeah. it and I, and so when Michael came on and the timing was perfect because he was shooting a film that had to be interrupted because of COVID so he was back home and, you know, was baking banana bread or not. Um, and so, yeah, no, it feels... Kevin made chalas. <laughs> nice. <laughs> um, but it, it's... What's odd, I suppose, except it's just our lives, is that we will, like, speak of ourselves as characters when we talk about inheritance. So it's like, well, when Danny does this and when Michael does that, and it we would but sound I think like that's kind of cool. We would sound like insane people if you just overheard us. It's like the you know the royal I we can't or something. Wait. Um the great Polish director Agnieszka Holland is um is slated to direct it. So it's very exciting. I mean Michael's writing the script for a filmmaker's filmmaker's filmmaker. I mean people you know, worship her. And, and he's got, you know, he's got my, also, yet I think writers have to understand when their work is being adapted, that things are going to change, yeah. even in memoir. I've heard that a million it, times. And, and, and if you, if you don't, if you can, if you can't sign up for that, then, then don't, then don't do it. Yeah. My feeling is always, I, I mean, I want a, a great film to be made, but my feeling is always, it will bring so many new readers to the book, and the book is the book. The book is unchanged. It will always be the book. So, Danny, here's my last question. You end the book with the beginning. Uh, the Wolf's moving to 18 Division Street, and everything is so promising. In your interview on Family Secrets with Katie Couric that you recently did, she describes a period in her life as being in the happiness bubble. And by definition, bubbles burst. And the question for you is, is this inevitable? And do we all have secrets of one sort of another, even if the secret is merely not accepting who we really are? That's a great question. I mean, I when I think of what Katie said there about the bubble, and I think about 
the very end of Signal Fires, which I I really knew, I knew what I wanted to do for the ending well before I got there. I knew I wanted it to end with the beginning. I wanted it to end, and it's not a spoiler. I mean, it's just, it's it's not. Um, it with, with this young family full of promise with, you know, two babies and their whole futures ahead of them moving into this house and all of the, all the feelings that they had, all the hope, all the optimism. And um, do bubbles always burst? I don't think, I, I wouldn't even say that has necessarily anything to do with secrets. Bubbles always burst. Um, you know, to love is to be willing to lose. And, you know, the greater the love, the greater the pain. Mm-hmm. And that's simply the case. And we go through our lives and we don't want to think about that. If we thought about that all the time, we would never get out of bed. But it also makes everything very beautiful um, and very uh, vivid, you know, in its in its fragility. Mm-hmm. And I really wanted to capture that. I mean, I've been hearing early readers of, of, of Signal Fire saying this, this book is like an answer to grief. Like, and I love mm-hmm. that so much. Like it, 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 it's about hard things, but somehow I felt better after I read it. So I think, you know, it is, it is the, and, and also those, that young family, that eight, that eight legged creature of that family, they were still carrying their young selves with them all through, yeah. you know, you know, Y2K New Year's it's Eve like the in 2010. Russian dolls, yeah. Right. It's like the Russian dolls that you're there as the grown up, but all the others of you, the inner crowd, are there. Yeah. Are there. Yeah. You know, I think that that's an interesting comment how some of the early readers, the way I felt when I finished the book, and I've read it twice now because I read it when I got the galley and then I read it again to prepare for our conversation. And I've said a few things about it that feel solid in my head. One is I've recommended this as the book that every book club ought to read because there are as many topics to discuss in here as exist in life. That's what it kept doing for me. It made you think about all the elements of a life that go right, that go wrong, that you overcome, that you don't overcome, the the accidents that happen that may be horrible or may be minor. But I think, Danny, what I admire that you did is you put so many of these metaphysical or life questions in a narrative that is fun to read and fast-paced to read but you have such a connection to the character. And I think this is what I said. I, I think I think this is what I wrote to you after I read The Galley is it reminded me that we are lovable with our frailties. Mm. Maybe even more so. Maybe more. If we, if we let ourselves be known. So, Danny Shapiro, thank you for writing Signal Fires. Thanks, Rock. Just the Right Book is not just a podcast. JustTheRightBook.com is a highly personalized book subscription service. It's good for readers of all ages. We have decades and decades of bookselling experience at RJ Julia's, and they're the ones who are selecting these books. 
here's what happens. We get tons and tons of letters. We've been around for over 10 years, and the letters always are a version of this. I can't believe you picked out this book. I would have never picked it out. And guess what? It was Just the Right Book. So visit JustTheRightBook.com for details and begin your subscription today. Of course, we have a promo code for you. So if you go to JustTheRightBook.com, use the promo code PODCAST, and you will get 15% off on your subscription at JustTheRightBook.com. You are listening to Just the Right Book with Roxanne Cody, brought to you by Lit Hub Radio. The show is produced by Roxanne Cody, Michael Selleck, and Lit Hub Radio. Our editor is Gino Cardone at Pleasant Podcast. The original theme music is by Kurt Feldman. You can subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I am Roxanne Cody. Thank you so much for listening. And if you have any comments, observations, suggestions, we'd love to hear from you. You can email me at justtherightbook at rjjulia.com. <laughs>